Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you need additional help on how to do that, we have a Next Steps page on our website that you can check out. Also, if you haven't been able to attend a service at any one of our campuses recently and participate in the time of giving, you can give anytime you want online by visiting our Give page or by texting to give. We hope that God speaks to you in this sermon. Take care. These are questions that you asked us to answer. We compiled the results from a survey we sent out to over 10,000 people. There are a lot of people who, who don't necessarily feel the permission to really struggle with these things and wonder out loud about these things here in church. Let's be gracious as we enter into these topics. Let's be aware of differences. Let's be open to what God might want to teach us. And let's approach each of these weeks with our eyes wide open. We say, I believe. I believe that Christ's death was for me. I believe his resurrection is my resurrection. I believe he paid for my sins. That's actually my hope and prayer for all of us today. That we would experience the Jesus that can and will radically change our lives. Why can't I stop doing the things I know I shouldn't do? You know, Greg wondered the same thing a few months ago. Um, it wasn't that his drinking had gotten too out of hand or he was drinking too much necessarily, but when he did have a couple cocktails, his anger grew to a level that was not comfortable for those around him. Um, his whole demeanor changed when he, when he drank. It came quickly and ferociously. His girlfriend told him that if he didn't start to control his alcohol consumption, if he couldn't stop himself from having that one more that would kind of send him over the edge, then their four-year relationship would come to an end. But there was Greg the very next night pouring himself one more after dinner. I'm fine, he thought. I've got this under control. Greg and his girlfriend have been separated for six months now, and Greg keeps wondering and asking and trying to figure out why he couldn't just stop. Jessica has a similar story. Um, she loves her husband, but she also loves attention. She's always been a very outgoing and fun person, one of those people that no matter your age, race, or gender, you have a great time being around her. Um, the only problem is that her fun-loving personality tends to cause her to be extremely flirtatious. Her friends have called her out on this. Her husband's told her how uncomfortable it makes him. And Jessica is, is very aware of exactly what she's doing and what it is communicating. And she's not proud of it, but like I said, she loves attention. <clears throat> the couple has been in marriage counseling for over a year now. And they're trying to figure out if the attention Jessica gets from her spouse will ever be enough. Her husband has lost hope. It doesn't look good. And every day, Jessica continues to go to work and flirt with her male coworkers. As she rides Bart home every day, she thinks about how she thought she was going to have a good day in this problem area of her life. She was convinced that she was going to grit her teeth and try to stop that day, but it didn't work why? Why can't I stop doing the things I know I shouldn't do? Maybe you walked into church today and 
you have a, a story very similar to Greg and Jessica's. Maybe the names are different and the main issue is different, but the narrative sounds strikingly familiar to you. Why can't I stop watching pornography? Why can't I stop gossiping? Why can't I stop lying? Why can't I stop sleeping with him or her? Why can't I stop cheating? Why can't I stop doing the things I know I shouldn't do? You understand the hurt that, that, that it is causing you and the pain that it's causing those you love. But no matter how hard you try, no matter how badly you wanna stop, uh, stop no matter how determined you are to take control and choose to not do that thing, you find yourself right back where you started. But I want you to know today that if this is your struggle, you're not alone. The Apostle Paul, the man who is responsible for writing most of our New Testament, had a ton of frustration around this very same question as well. Here's what he wrote in Romans chapter seven. This is from the Apostle Paul. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. I do not understand what I do. Why do I keep doing the things I know I shouldn't do? And today on all of our campuses and for those joining us online and, and our friends in the incarcerated church, we get to discuss the intricacies of this question that you all asked for. And I think at the heart of this question isn't so much the why, but more so the how. How do I stop? How do I quit? What must I do? A famous person during a counseling session actually gave a very simple and profound response. Advice that if we were to hold on to and implement into our lives would propel us forward into areas of growth that we have yet to experience as human beings. So what can we do to make sure that we no longer do the things we know we shouldn't do? Check out this advice. All right, well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most, we find most people can, uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay, here, you're there. Stop it! <laughs> I'm sorry? Stop it! Stop it? Yes! S-T-O-P, new word, I-T. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. There we go. Well, we can go home. We got our, got our advice, we got the question answered. I'm sure for some of us, uh, we wish that we could send our children to a counselor like this, just clear the air. But uh, I don't think this is all that helpful for us today. My parents actually, when they train counselors, this is the first video they show them, and they say, this is not the way to, way to counsel people. Um, 
But like I said, this doesn't really help us move forward too much today. So let's, let's get back to the original question because there is significant value in understanding the answer to this question, why? Why can't I stop? You know, I'm guessing the reason so many of us voted on this question is because at some point in our lives, we've made a decision where we thought, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? What made me act that way? What made me make that decision? I mean, we've all seen smart people make stupid decisions. And when we see that, we've thought to ourselves, I don't understand why they did that. And the reason you don't understand is the same reason I don't understand some of the dumb decisions I make. And I've made countless dumb decisions over the course of my life, and I guarantee you I will make countless more throughout the rest of my life. But why? Why do we do this? Well, according to Paul, as he kind of worked through this question, trying to figure out why he didn't understand what he did, he said it all comes down to this. The problem of sin. Here's what he writes next in Romans chapter, chapter seven. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me. That is in my sinful nature. That's an important phrase for us today, sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Can anyone relate to this? Sounds like a journal entry I've had a time or two in my life. Paul goes on to say that there are two things that guide us, two things that are at odds with one another within each of us. Our sinful nature, the force that attempts to capture and enslave us, and God who desires to free us, give us victory over sin. And all of this takes us back to the very beginning. See, in God's original creation, when he formed everything and put together dynamic and abundant forms of life that are all perfectly woven together, he took a step back and said, this is good. The Hebrew way to explain the perfect creation was the word shalom, which we typically understand as peace. But the true meaning of this word goes much deeper than that. It means joy and harmony and wholeness and flourishing life. But when sin entered the world, we lost shalom. As soon as we decided to serve ourselves instead of God, when we no longer looked at God as our highest good, the entire world became broken. We became broken. And we began to attach ourselves to different things in order to fulfill what we had lost. We became disoriented about what would cure and fix and heal and resolve this problem that has plagued humanity since the beginning. And one of the things that we still feel more than anything else is that this created a need. And when we attempt to meet our needs with things that are unhealthy, the need just continues to grow. You see, the essence of sin is not the violation of laws but a relationship with God that has been ruined. French philosopher Simone Weil says, all sins are attempts to fill voids. There is a God-shaped hole inside of us. 
And we can try and fill that void with all sorts of different things, but the only thing that will fix what is broken is God. And this is the profound thing about sin, because sin has so much more depth to it than just doing the wrong things, doing the things that we know we shouldn't do, like we asked this question. As Indian-born Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias explains it. I don't have a slide. I don't know why I'm looking over there. As Indian-born Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias says, sin is, not, sin is not the breaking of an abstract law. It is the violation of a person, the person of God. When God gives the law, he's not looking to see who is going to be good in relation to the law or who is going to be bad in relation to the law, but what God is looking at what he's looking to see is who is going to recognize God for who he is and who isn't. You see, the reason we do the things we know we shouldn't do is because we do not recognize God for who he is or who he has always been. And when we don't recognize God for who he is, we don't trust, this is what we do, we don't trust the path that God provides for us. We start to look at ourselves as the highest good, as the greatest good. We take our own path. We take our own directions. Now, I don't know about you, but there have been a time or two in my life where I thought, you know, I'm the one that, that is best suited to make the decision. I know better than everyone else. I will just follow my own directions, just like one or two or three times in my life. You know, every, every summer I get a chance to go to Hume Lake Christian Camp to visit our high school and middle school students and I bring my son Jericho with me who's six and he has a blast hanging out with all the, the big kids and, and it's just a really cool father-son time that we get together. And, and I've been making this drive for years and years, all the way back to my time as a youth pastor and, and every summer going up there with my son. So I could tell you how to get to Hume Lake, no problem. Like I know the roads up there like the back of my hand. And so this past summer when we were driving up and my GPS started telling me to turn around, I was like, no, that's not right. I know how to get up there. And so I kept driving and about 15 minutes later, I was like, we should be getting there pretty soon and this does not look familiar. And the whole time the GPS is saying, turn around, turn around. And I'm just like, no, I don't wanna do that. So I drove for another 30 minutes with the entire time the GPS is yelling at me to turn around. So I did what any wise person would do in this situation. I turned the GPS off. <laughs> be quiet, Australian Siri. Um, <laughs> That's a cool option that you can go with. Anyway, so I turned it off and it was about this time that my frustrated and erratic driving had begun to catch up with my son. And he said, Dad? And it was one of those moments where you know as a parent that everything's about to go terribly wrong. And it did. Apparently, Jericho had eaten two corn dogs for breakfast that morning at his grandma and grandpa's house, which now we know why he loves spending time at grandma and grandpa's house so much. And do you want to know how I figured out what Jericho ate for breakfast that morning? <laughs> the interior of my truck had been repainted with the contents of Jericho's stomach. I felt so bad. I think Jericho did too. <laughs> but my inability to follow the directions I had been given cost my son dearly. 
it hurt my son and my truck. <laughs> See, I, I, I learned that day a few important lessons, but, but what I... But what I realized is that this, is, this was not a good start to, to my son's and my time away together. We, we, we pulled over, I, I washed him off and um, cleaned him up and I, and I apologized and I turned my GPS back on and I realized that I took a, a wrong turn. And because I didn't turn back around when I was told to, when I was given very clear directions, misery ensued. My mistake that day paints a picture, not a, not a pretty picture, about the relationship between doing the things we know we shouldn't do and recognizing God for who he is. Or more simply put, there is my path or his path, my way or his way. And I apologize if this seems like an overly simplified approach to this question. But I think there's probably a reason why countless books have been written on this very subject and why so many of us time and time again end up at a destination, end up at a place where we go, I did not intend to be here. How did I get here? What happened? This is not where I want to be. See, our failure to submit to God, to trust his way, to follow his directions, and our desire to choose our own path will inevitably lead us to places we do not want to go. And I hate to break it to you, but none of us are wise enough or smart enough to continue to choose our own way. If there ever was a man who could have trusted his own ability to choose his own path, it would have been King Solomon. We, we learn about King Solomon in the Bible in, in 1 Kings, and it refers to him as the wisest man who ever lived. He became king at 20 years old, and he took over for his father, David, who a lot of us are aware of some of the stories of David. And right before David passed away, right before he died, in all of his wisdom, he gave Solomon some parting advice. And the last thing he said to Solomon before he died was, hey, son, pay attention to this. Listen up. Here's my advice. Walk in obedience to God. Here's, here's the last, my parting insight for your life. Follow God's path. After David passed away and Solomon began to settle into his throne, God spoke to Solomon. And here's what God said to Solomon. He said, Solomon, ask for whatever you want and I will give it to you. Has anyone else ever imagined that scenario? The guy would say, hey, what do you want? It's all yours. Like he just wrote Solomon a blank check. God just said, here you go, son. Here's a blank check. Whatever you want, whatever you wanna do. He's 20 years old. Like think about what you would have asked for at 20. I have my list of what I would have asked for at 20. It's a lot different than what, than what Solomon asked for. This guy barely passes teenage years. Here's what he asks for. First Kings chapter three, verse nine, Solomon says to God, after God says, here's a blank check, what do you want? He says, so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? God, I want a discerning heart and I wanna be able to distinguish between right and wrong. Solomon asked for wisdom. He was wise enough to know that he wasn't all that wise. 
So he asked for wisdom. And God gave it to him. Like if there was ever a person in the history of humanity who could have said, hey God, why don't you sit this one out? I've got it, I'll choose my own path. It would have been Solomon. People came from all over the world to listen to what Solomon had to say and get insight and advice from him. He could have said, God, I got this, don't worry about it. But he knew better. He took his father's advice, he took David's advice, he listened to God, he walked in obedience to God, he followed God's way, and then later on in life, he wrote something so profound and insightful to us that we get to hold on to. He said, hey, here's what's important, here's what matters. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but rather in all your ways, submit to him, and he will give you the right directions. He will make your paths straight. It's like Solomon was reading our mind as we asked this question. Hey, hey, Solomon, I have a propensity to do the things I know I shouldn't do. I have a propensity to follow my own way. What insight do you have for me? And Solomon says, hey, don't miss this. You're not smart enough, wise enough, old enough, or experienced enough to do that, so knock it off. Instead, in all your ways, with all your heart, don't lean on your own understanding but submit to him and God will give you the right directions. And just like my trip to Hume Lake with my son proved, when we trust our own directions, it will lead us to a situation we do not want to be in. In my case, it cost me some time and it cost my son his breakfast But if we follow our own directions when it comes to our finances, our marriages, our jobs, our parenting, our relationships, guys, I've seen it time and time again. It will cost us so much more. In all our ways, submit to God. Not some of your ways. Not a few of your ways. In all your ways, submit to God. See, this is recognizing, nice job putting that back up there. This right here is recognizing who God is. This is what gives us hope in the midst of a disrupted state of shalom. God will make our paths straight. He will give us the right directions. It will be so evident and so clear that we will have the ability to to choose not to do the things we know we shouldn't do. But it begins with us to Uh, refusing to lean on our own understanding. It begins with us submitting and surrendering to God to say, hey, I admit that I don't know what's best. Now, I wanna be clear on something here because I'm not recommending or prescribing or implying a quick fix. Submission and surrender are the foundation for significant change, but they are not easy. Sometimes paired with these things are a change of thought, patterns, behavior, etc. And if you're struggling with something big, if you're, if you're dealing with an addiction right now and it's something you've been walking with for a while, I do not want to come across as insensitive to your struggle. I know that your journey may include one step forward and two steps back. I know that you may work really hard for a month to make some progress, but you'll feel like you're, you're standing right where you started. And I so empathize with your journey. But with that said, I do believe that submission to God is vital 
in this process. Turning my will over to God is so necessary in your journey. I mean, this is why the first three steps of any 12-step recovery program are, number one, I am powerless over my addiction. Number two, there is a God, a power that is greater than me who can restore me. And number three, I will turn my will over to God. That's how people, countless people, have battled and fought their addiction. And it most likely will be a consistent commitment to submission or surrender for an extended period of time before you begin to, say, to see lasting change. So please hear me, this is not easy. And it actually wasn't easy for Solomon either. Um, this is a man who knew the value of submission to God. He taught about it, he wrote about it, we just read what he had to write, and it was such good, sound advice, but unfortunately, he didn't always live his own advice. What we just learned was not the end of Solomon's story, because at a certain point, he made the mistake of leaning on his own understanding. You see, when God established the nation of Israel, he completely prohibited the, the men to marry foreign women. Because back in that day, kings would, would marry foreign women to establish good relationships with their neighbors. It was like very strategic political moves that would, that would help with protection of your country. But God did not want his people to depend on that for protection. He wanted them to depend on him. But Solomon went, ah, I know better. I know better than you, God. So he decided to take his own way. And he started by marry, marrying Pharaoh's daughter, which was a very sound and strategic political move. And then Solomon thought, hey, that turned out pretty good. Why don't I just marry all the women from all the nations? Look at, look at, look at 1 Kings 11. You think I'm joking. Look at 1 Kings 11. Verse one, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, don't miss this, the Lord directly says to his people, you must not intermarry with them. Why? Because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. This will happen if you intermarry with them. Got it, Solomon? Got it. Good. Great. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth. 700 wives. That's 700 anniversaries to remember. I struggle with one. That's 700 mother-in-laws. I struggle with one. And she's here. So, love you, mom. 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives. What happened? His wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Don't miss what the writer of 1 Kings is saying here. Solomon was giving, given very clear directions. But he allowed his submission to be directed to something else. And his wives turned his heart away. He no longer trusted the Lord with all of his heart. Part of his heart went somewhere else. He no longer surrendered to God's ways. 
So what happened? What caused him to stop submitting to God? I'll explain it like this. Think, think, back to, uh, think back to driver's ed. You remember when you were taking your driver's ed course as you were preparing to get your license, like the greatest moment of your life when you're a 15, 16-year-old? And, and what did the instructor tell you about where you looked? Does anyone remember this? They said, where you look is where you will go. I took a motorcycle safety class, and this is very true on a motorcycle. If you look somewhere, you will go there, whether you want to or not. But it's true for any vehicle. Like, where you look, you will tend to steer there as well. I, I learned this firsthand as a 20-year-old. When I was driving to church, I was working at my parents' church, and I was driving into work on a Sunday morning, much like today, and as I was driving to church, I was overtaken by some envy because a Maserati drove up right next to me. And I was like, that's a lot nicer than what I'm driving. I'm gonna stare at that for a while. And so I did, and, and as the Maserati turned to the left, I kept watching. And I drifted to the left as the Maserati turned away, and then I hit a curb. And then I hit a four by four that was holding a sign that said, welcome to our community or something. I don't remember. <laughs> even though it was like right there. <laughs> and then I had to go to the mechanic because the front end of my truck was completely destroyed. You know, maybe what you're learning from this sermon today is that, is that I'm, not, I'm not a good driver, which <laughs> might be true. But what grabbed my attention that day caused me to drift in a direction I did not want to go and it ultimately led me to a destination that cost me dearly. See, the same is true for our lives. As Andy Stanley writes in his book, The Principle of the Path, and this is such a phenomenal book, and I recommend it so much to you. Uh, it helped me answer this question a lot this week. But, but here, here's what he, and I'm actually gonna talk about this in Beyond Sunday, our, our YouTube channel that Chris and I are recording tomorrow, so tune into that. Um, I'll unpack this a little bit more. But here's what Andy Stanley says in this book. He says, what captures our attention influences our direction, which we know from taking driver's ed. But here's the, here's the profound thing he said. As your attention goes, so goes your life. As your attention goes, so goes your life. You know, Solomon learned this lesson the hard way. Something else grabbed his attention, 700 something else's. He paid attention to things that took the place of his submission, of his surrender, of turning his will over to God, and they turned his heart away, and it ruined what he was working toward. For Solomon, his whole life goal was to build the kingdom, to advance Israel and make it a world power. But shortly after he died, the kingdom he was working so hard to strengthen was divided into two weaker kingdoms. Everything he was working toward, everything he was building, the legacy he was trying to leave was ruined because his attention was given to things that caused him to stop submitting to God's plans. And guys, I guarantee, I guarantee the same will happen to us if we don't figure this out. What are you working toward right now? What are you building? What legacy are you trying to leave? Well, don't miss this. Make no mistake here. Paying attention in the wrong direction will destroy it all. You will not be able to submit, to turn your will over to God if your attention is directed somewhere else. So what are you paying attention to? What would your, what would your spouse or your, or your kids say? They, would they say that they have to fight for your attention? Is there something that gets an inordinate amount of your attention that probably shouldn't? If you were to ask God, 
hey, where is my attention directed? What's the direction of my attention? What would God say? How would God answer that question for you? Here's the deal. If we don't pay attention to the right things, it may not cost us now, but it will definitely cost us later. In my life, I've realized that the things that most often grab or capture my attention are usually things I should avoid. The newest Taco Bell commercial can totally attest to this. I should not have given that my attention last week. I, I paid for that. But that's not the only place I could go wrong, right? Like the fast food restaurant. That's, that's not it. There's the woman with the revealing clothing. The happy hour deal that just looks so enticing. The baseball game on the television that goes 18 innings <laughs> while my family sits nearby. These things could all lead to regret as well if, if I choose to pay attention to those things, over paying attention to the right things. And here's the big kicker in all this. We can actually choose what we pay attention to. We get to choose the direction of our attention. And we remember, as our attention goes, so goes our life. And this phrase, pay attention, pay attention is a phrase we've been hearing our entire lives. We heard it from our parents, from our teachers, from, from people all over the place, been telling us to pay attention. So this is not a new phrase for us. But here's the thing I want us to understand. This word pay, it implies something, right? It implies that a price be paid. It comes with a cost, and it does. I mean, we don't pay better attention to our health because it would cost us the delicious dessert. We don't, you, you, your neighbor isn't paying attention to his wife because it feels like a payment to him. It would cause him to give up something else. Your friend hasn't gotten her kids plugged into a, a healthy church community because it would cost too much time and energy and effort to get them there consistently. And by the way, this is a complete side note, but I feel like we have to say it because I know we have our high school students here today. This is the same parent who will call our youth pastors a few years later and say, hey, why aren't you doing more to fix my kid? Look, we have a great, great student ministry in this church, but it will never make up for years of spiritual neglect in the home. Because if we don't pay attention to the right things, it may not cost us now, but it will cost us later. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, submit to God, give God your attention, and he'll give you the right directions. Here's the deal. When we resist God's will for our lives, when we pay attention to the wrong things, here's what we end up doing. We resist God. When we resist the truths of his, of his scripture that he's established in his word, then we begin to resist God. When we start doing the things we know we shouldn't do based on what we read here, we're resisting God. When, 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 when we resist taking full responsibility for the people that God has entrusted us with, we resist God. If we care about our future, if we care about overcoming our sin, if we care about not doing the things we know we shouldn't do, it's time to stop resisting God. Right now would be a great time to put aside any resistance you've had to God's will in your life and ask for help. That's what I'm doing this week. Every time I preach a message like this, God's hitting me upside the head going, you need to figure this out. Surrender. Pay attention. Because here's the thing that I've learned over, over the course of my life. 
if you start, if we start paying attention to things that please God, what we will learn, what we will discover is that we will start to pay attention to God. And I can think of no better place to direct my attention. Because for as much as I care about my future, from everything I read in this beautiful book, I know that God deeply cares about the direction of my life. He cares so much for my future, so much that his attention toward me, toward us, came at a ridiculous price tag. I'll, I'll close with this. Um, someone who, who really helped me understand this was the great pastor and author and theologian Eugene Peterson. Um, and Eugene Peterson passed away earlier this week. And I, I was pretty devastated. He was very formative to me during my college years and just, he wrote a book called The Pastor that really helped me understand what it means to be a pastor. So I'm gonna miss his new insight and understanding. Um, but he was a fascinating man. He, he once took the main idea that was associated with atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, that the only way to live is to find a standard and stick to it. And he then repurposed that statement to be about following Jesus. It was brilliant to submit to Jesus's way and to follow him and pay attention. He literally stole Nietzsche's catchphrase, a long obedience, listen to this, a long obedience in the same direction. And he made it the name of his own best-selling book about discipleship in an instant society. He took the, the, the main catchphrase of an atheist philosopher and said, this is what discipleship looks like when your attention is focused on Jesus. But his best work may have been done when he wrote the message. A paraphrase of the Bible that has sold over 16 million copies worldwide. And I love the way that he summarized the Apostle Paul's conclusion to this question that Paul was wrestling with in Romans chapter 7. Here's what Eugene Peterson writes as he paraphrases Paul's words. He says, I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I wanna serve God with all of my heart and all of my mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. With the arrival of Jesus the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous low-lying black cloud because a new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. And then I love what he says next. He says, God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered this disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. You see, the price God paid for us was his son. The God who cares so much about the direction of our lives, the God who cares so much about where we end up, the God who cares so much about our future sent his own for us. So if you walked into church today and you're going, oh, I know we're talking about this question, why do I keep doing the things I know we shouldn't do? And you're feeling like any sense of guilt or shame, or you're just down, if you're overwhelmed by the weight of your sin, by things that you've been submitting to or giving your attention to that are not of God, and if you're wondering if there's anything you can do, if there's anyone that can help you, 
then take it from me and take it from all these people across all of our East Bay auditoriums that the answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He's calling after you. He's calling your name today. He's saying, hey, I'm right here. Pay attention. I've never left you. I'll never fail you. Shalom is available to you. I brought that. So bring me your sorrows and your regret and your mistakes and I'll, and I'll replace it all with joy. When there was a price to be paid, I paid it for you. I purchased your freedom. I bought your forgiveness. I just want you. most beautiful picture is that Jesus Christ is standing with arms wide open waiting to receive his children and no matter what has captured us or overtaken us or whatever we've given our attention to he just says just turn I'm right here I'm calling you I love you I want you moment we're going to sing the same song on all of our campuses and if you've ever felt the grace of God if you've ever recognized who God is and the power and control he has in your life if you've ever submitted to God's ways if you desire to give God your attention that I want to ask that as we sing this song that you sing this song praise God declare how powerful and mighty of a savior he is and recognize the price he paid on our behalf. And if you've never submitted to God before and you've never made that decision to take that step forward to pay attention to Jesus, uh, we have a group of people that will be up front here that would love to pray for you. So Jesus is calling all of us today to take, to take a step toward him, to pay attention to him and to recognize and realize that for all of those things that we know we shouldn't do, they were covered by what only he could do. Our forgiveness was purchased with his sacrifice, with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God, you are such a good, incredible, amazing, forgiving, gracious, compassionate, kind, loving, merciful God. We are not worthy to stand in your presence, God, but we do today declaring who you are and recognizing the price that you paid on our behalf, God, declaring how deserving you are of our attention and our submission and our worship, God, that we would turn our will over to you because we know that you know the best path. God, this week when we have a decision to make, when we come to a crossroads, let us look to your way because we know that your path will be obvious and clear. Father God, hear our worship and adoration and praise right now in this moment. You are so worthy. We pray this in the powerful, incredible, matchless name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.